Amen. Okay, got the tone set now. <laughs> it's going to be an ominous day. <laughs> uh, we're continuing in our, in our Nuts and Bolts series. Uh, each pastor is kind of going to be doing four different um, series. I've been looking at the different relationships that God has instituted um, for the good of society, for the good of the individual, for the good of the church, and also just for His ultimate glory. And last time we looked at the church family, and today we're going to be talking about marriage. Uh, whenever I say the word marriage, I don't know, has, anybody, has everybody hopefully seen The Princess Bride? I can't help but hear a marriage is what brings us together today. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, you're missing out. I don't know what to say, but uh, that's what brings us together for this sermon today. Um, I am going to give you another pastoral general warning because for some reason, marriage has become a controversial subject. And um, it's possible that I'm going to anger or offend either maybe somebody here or somebody listening. And that's not my, that's not my goal. My goal is really to be um, accurate and passionate about what God has laid out for us in His Word. Uh, that's our standard for truth and life. If you disregard God's Word, you're left with using popular opinion or what's acceptable in culture as your standard. And I just want to say those make a terrible standard for truth and life because they change from week to week and month to month. You can't really keep up with it. So um, not a great one. But there's this pressure. It's, it's a real pressure for Christians to conform because nobody wants to, to come across as unloving or bigoted or, or just kind of to be the odd man out. We don't want to be that. And so uh, it's easier sometimes just to go with what's accepted in culture and, and go with a general consensus. And, and we're seeing many Christians do that, especially when people look to their emotions to decide what's right when it comes to marriage. The, the moment you can put a name and a face with this situation, it, 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 something changes. You know, you, you, it's, it becomes more difficult to be objective. So we must ask ourselves the same question Paul asked in Galatians 1.11. Am I now seeking the approval of men or am I seeking the approval of God? Um, it's interesting. I used to have a, one of my kids used to have that as their password, Galatians one eleven. That was how they, you know, for their computer. And uh, that that particular child has determined that they're going to seek the approval of man, and it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, it's just funny how that works. But we have to answer that question, each one of us as Christians. We we need to care more about what God has to say, and we do this by looking to His Word, which is um, we believe authoritative. So this means that as Christians, we should will, willingly submit to, to what it says about marriage or any other topic for that matter. Um, and I would argue in regard to marriage, God's design and His desire could not be more clear. So if you reject what God's Word has to say, it isn't because it's not clear, it's because you don't like what it says. And let me just point out, I don't expect non-Christians, worldly people, to, to like what it says. I, I don't expect them to agree with us when it comes to this thing. It, it would be kind of weird if they did. Um, they don't see the Bible as relevant. They don't see it as authoritative. So it makes perfect sense for them to reject it. And, and um, that, that really shouldn't surprise us when it happens. It, it's completely consistent with their, their logic and their worldview. But it also means that you would hope it wouldn't surprise them when when we stay true to what the Bible says, if we say we're followers of Christ, you would think they would say, well, sure, he's, they're going to follow him. They wouldn't be surprised by that. But it seems to, to be the case. So bottom line is it's okay to disagree with people. Hopefully, 
they see that we're also just simply being consistent with our worldview as well. Somehow in our day and age, we've lost the art of disagreement. It's kind of frustrating. It's this idea that if you don't disagree with me, you hate me or I hate you. And, and you still, you know, the names, the name calling starts and all this kind of stuff. When it comes to topics like this, we can't control how other people respond to us, but we can definitely control the way we respond to them. And if you need a guide on how to do this right, we have one. His name is Jesus. He's an amazing guide when it comes to this. He spent time with sinners who completely disagreed with him. Did he not? How did he, how did he do it? Well, he was compassionate. He was kind. He was loving. He was respectful. Um, and yet, he unapolog- unapologetically told them the truth. Because he loved them. Not because he hated them. All right? So we can disagree with somebody's beliefs and lifestyle and treat, still treat that person with kindness and respect and even seek to try to understand in some degree. Um, I, I would hope that they could do the same for us, but don't expect it. It, it may not happen. And, and as we get into this, if you find yourself disagreeing with the biblical worldview of marriage, I would encourage you just to, to hang in there, to listen anyway, because you may not come away agreeing, but you, you may come away with some understanding as far as why we land where we land and why. And to me, that's helpful. I found that there's something about understanding somebody else's point of view, even when I don't agree with them, that you know, it, it's, it does a couple important things for me. One, it moves things from just being theoretical and, and kind of hypothetical. It humanizes it. Now, now I have a person. So like, for instance, this is one topic that comes up in our day and age, critical race theory. I disagree with it. I don't understand why somebody would hold to it. And yet I know some, some brothers in Christ who are a different race than I am, who see some kind of a value in, in, in thinking this way and understanding, you know, and, and it's like, if I could sit down with them and find a way to reach across the table and respect them and listen to them, I might learn something. I might, I might at least understand where they're coming from. It might not change my point of view, but at least I could seek to understand them and, and, and be sympathetic and charitable to their position. And this is, again, this is something that I, I, I think we lost. The other thing it does for me is it informs me to help me either rethink my view or to reinforce my view. Truth holds up to scrutiny. If something's true, we can, we can test it and it'll hold up. So here's the question. How does God define marriage in the Bible? Uh, the first thing we clearly see in God's word um, is in the creation account. And, and um, this is that God made men and women with distinctness on purpose. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's not, not confusing. It's not hard to, you know, to, to understand. God created two distinct genders. And this isn't something to be denied. It's not something to be erased. It's not something to be improved upon. It's something to be celebrated. We shouldn't be ashamed of God's Word. We can be confident in what it says and, and even you know, get excited about it. When God did this, what did He say about it? He said it's very good. If God thinks it's very good, it's okay for us to think it's also very good. There's this pressure from society to rethink all this stuff right now. There's a pressure from society for men to stop being masculine. But that's not God's good design. And I especially see this having an effect on younger men um, who are now afraid of being seen as toxic or being seen as part of the problem. And again, if you've been influenced by the thinking behind critical race theory you know, you, you can kind of see why guys would do this. Um, they believe that being a white male is the worst thing they can possibly be. That's what's, that's what's taught in critical race theory. If you're a white male, you're at the top of the oppressor food chain. And so it's no wonder that they would try to undo that or hide it or, you know, to try to do something to, tr- to you know, just to survive socially, you would have to change that. 
And I do agree that there is a version of men that needs to be corrected. The idea of toxic masculinity or male chauvinism, those things don't honor God. We understand that. But it doesn't mean that you swing the pendulum all the way to the other extreme and also then become something that that doesn't honor God. And, And I feel like that's what we're doing. It's possible to be godly and masculine men, right? I know, I know plenty of them. Now, that doesn't mean you never cry, by the way. Still means that, that, that might still happen sometimes. But it's possible to be a godly masculine man. Now, there's also pressure from society for women to stop being feminine and, and to become like men, to which I would humbly say, gross, <laughs> Right? I, I don't, for the life of me, don't understand why a woman would want to be manly. Um, and, I, you know, is it a criticism about men? A little bit. You know, we're kind of gross at times. Um, God created women in such an amazing way. My wife, sorry, you're here because I'll embarrass you, but she's beautiful. She's feminine. She's smart. She's capable. She's even a bit of a tomboy, right? She likes to mow the lawn. She mowed the lawn this morning. Uh, she likes to get her hands dirty. She likes to fix things right? But the last thing I want my wife to be is manly. It just, I mean, no, no. Femininity is so incredible. Don't erase it. Embrace it, right? Part of God's good design. Men and women, men and women are different by design, and it's glorious. Not something to be apologized for. It's something to be celebrated. When we accept this truth, we, we can start to embrace the fact that we are wired differently, that God has given us different roles that don't compete with each other, but they complement each other in a beautiful way. And this brings us to the second observation that we see in the creation account. In Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Amen? Right. God knows this because he's Trinitarian. Do you know that God has never been alone? He's always had three distinct people that make up the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One entity, or, you know, one entity somehow. Three people, one entity. I don't understand that, but, but in His wisdom, He's created two distinct people, male and female, man and woman, and determined they would function better together as one entity. Um, different roles, yes, but equal. Man and woman becoming one is part of God's good design. He knows that it works. Uh, they're, they're a perfect match. You know, and you don't even have to really think about it too much to see this. It's very obvious. We have different physical abilities, different ways of thinking, different emotional makeup, a different logic, different relational abilities. We're well suited for each other. Men would not be the same without women, and women would not be the same without men, which is why God said it's not good that man should be alone. Then he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, I don't want to get too graphic on a Sunday morning, but this word fit kind of, you know, describe, it includes our physical bodies, for sure. Um, it's obvious that men and women were made for each other, right? Science and biology agree with this. Uh, even a good evolutionist, if they're consistent, would, would have to agree with this. Because you know how many generations you get if you try to do anything but that? You get one, and then you die. You become extinct. It don't work, because it wasn't designed to work. That's the reason. This is obviously the way God intended it to be, He knew what he was doing when he made you, right? I wish people would understand that because we have people trying to to find something different. God knew what he was doing when he made you. Now, part of the result of the fall, though, is that we don't want what God intended. You guys see that? If God says, I want it this way, we say, oh, yeah, check this out. 
I'm doing it this way. If God says, here's a line I don't want you to cross, we start going, oh, that's all you can think about now is that line. I want to cross that line. That's all, that's, I didn't want it before, but now I want it with everything I have. And that's because we believe the lie that Satan presented in the garden, that we're missing out on something better. He wants you to believe, and right now the lie is that you're missing out on your true authentic self. And you need to find what that is. And, and the young people are believing this. And then they're, they're, they're going to all these crazy things to try to find it and discover it. It's a great lie because none of us feel right in this world. Do you agree with that? Especially when you're young. You remember what it was like to be young? and Like you're in high school and stuff and you don't fit in. And you don't know what's going on with your body. And you don't know what's going on. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. And, and I will admit, even still today, I don't fit into this world. I know that something's not right here because it's not my home. And so to capitalize on this lie and say, well, you're never going to feel like your true authentic self unless you go and do this thing or this thing, or it's brilliant. But the answer isn't those things. The answer is found in God. That, that's the, you know. There's also something extremely appealing about doing what's forbidden. You know what I mean? If we know it's not supposed to work that way or be that way, we're drawn to it in our sin nature. Going the opposite way of God won't lead you to a path of completeness. It will lead you down a path that leads to dissatisfaction, disappointment, disillusionment, and ultimately to destruction. It's not a path you want to be on. So it takes faith to submit to what God has designed and to trust that His way is best for us. And by the way, that hasn't changed. It it was very good at creation. Guess what? Still very good today. Even though people will say, well, that was fine back then, but now we're, we're modern, we're evolved, we're, you know, we don't have to think that way. This is a popular thought. Jesus never talked about this stuff in the New Testament, so it's okay. Yeah, he did. Actually, he restated these very verses very clearly. So in Matthew 19, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Those are the words of Jesus. Paul also reiterates the same thing. He goes like even further into it a little bit in the book of 1 Corinthians, because if you remember the 1 Corinthians, they were kind of all about sexual immorality. They were doing stuff that even, even non-Christians were going, what the, what's going on? That's not right. That's bad when you're doing that. If, when the non-Christian world is looking at Christians and saying, yeah, you shouldn't do that, that's pretty messed up. So he writes them a letter and and explains to them what sexual sin is. And listen to how he defines it. I want you to hear how narrow this is. He he tells them the remedy for sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's the answer. That doesn't leave room for anything else. That's what the Bible teaches. That means that sex that occurs that isn't between a husband and wife in the Bible is called sin. And this also, by the way, includes living together. This is something else I'm seeing a lot of younger generation Christians doing. We used to call it shacking up. Um, If you're enjoying the benefits of marriage without being married, you're not honoring God. Plain and simple. It's funny how many people want God's blessing for their life, right? But they they won't do the things he's asked them to do in order to be blessed. They're not doing, willing to do the things he's prescribed. So the things we've talked about are the basis for the Christian worldview on marriage. Again, the question would then come up, why do Christians care so much? Why do you care who loves who, who sleeps with who, who does what? Why do you guys care so much? You guys hear that question? Like, why can't you just mind your own business and, and, and let it be done in the privacy of their own home? Well, because they've moved past that now, and they're trying to make it accept. We have not, don't, you know, not only do we have to just 
not pay attention to what's going on. We have to accept it. We have to approve it. That's not okay. So the first obvious answer as to why we care so much, I've already alluded to. It's because it's a big deal to God. The one who instituted marriage matters to him. That's the biggest reason. He deserves to be honored and respected. His design and his desire deserves to be honored and respected. We don't hold this view because we hate people or because we love being narrow-minded or we want to be the morality police or we want to just make sure we stomp out fun wherever it's happening. I think that's what people think about Christians. That's not why. We believe God's Word clearly teaches this and we want to simply respect our Creator and trust that He knows what's best since He made us. That's it. But there's another reason, and, and I think this is one that people don't think about or consider enough. What is marriage a picture of in the Bible? It's a picture of something other than just a man and a woman coming together. It's a picture of a Savior and a church coming together. Do you know, do you know that? Do you know that marriage is, is, is part of the gospel story? In Ephesians 5, we, we kind of blow by this sometimes when we're reading the Bible. Paul's talking about marriage, and he says this, 531, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says this, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's that? Part of what God had in mind when he created the gift of marriage is that it would point us to the even greater gift of salvation. So God's plan of redemption also includes the idea that it's not good for man to be apart, you know, to be alone, not to, be, to live apart from God. That's part of what it is. So he started planning a wedding. Before the foundation of the world, God started planning a wedding. And the groom's name is Jesus, and the bride's name is the church. And, and, and this is what the gospel story is about. It's, a, it's this love story that, that is really about God coming to save his people. And this is wired into why marriage exists. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's wired into why marriage exists. So to corrupt that or change it or to make a mockery of it is not okay. You know, the the weird thing to me is that you would think that a non-Christian would understand that, that marriage is distinctly Christian, that it's something God instituted. Why would they want any part of it? Really, why would they want any part of what God has done? It doesn't make sense when you think about it. But, but then you think, wait a second, they've done the same thing with Christmas. They've done the same thing with Easter. It's like, no, we want to celebrate too. We just don't want to include God. So that's how you get Santa and bunnies and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want God. We don't want what he's instituted. We don't want him, but we still want to be able to do what we want to do. It's kind of strange. But this is why it matters so much to us and why it's so sacred to us. And not only is the gospel central to why marriage was instituted, but, it, but it's also kind of the pattern as far as how marriage works, okay? So if you were thinking, okay, we've moved past the controversial part and that wasn't too bad, <laughs> well, you're not in luck. <laughs> it's about to get worse for some of you. <laughs> um, because what we're talking about next also seems old-fashioned, antiquated, and wrong to, to people today. So we've already determined God created male and female to be distinctly different, and he gave them different roles that would complement each other. Um, This means that God, according to his own purpose, determined that husbands would be the head of the marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 lays all this out for us clearly. I used to jokingly say, we're going to look at every woman's favorite verse in the Bible right now, and when, you know, wives submit to your husbands, that one. But but what I found, yes, right? You guys all have it on your fridge at home. But what I've actually found, I I, I don't joke about it, well, I just did, but I don't usually try to joke about it anymore, because what I found is, I know a lot of women who love this verse. 
who actually take great comfort in this verse because they understand the blessing that God intends for them in it. And they also understand the responsibility that places on their, on their husband's shoulders and they're grateful for it. So, so to mock this and say, oh, you know, hey, you know, no, this is, this is again, God's good design. Ephesians 5.22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, it's interesting that a verse like this can be a comfort to one woman, and it can make another woman want to punch somebody, right? It, it does both of these things. And, of course, the question comes up, well, you know, why would God design things this way? Is he just trying to keep women down, right? The first thing I would point out is this. Look at any country where the gospel, where, where Jesus has been rejected outright, where Christianity has been rejected outright, and look at how the women are treated. I would argue that Christianity has done more for women's rights and the liberation of women and, and equality of women than any other thing in the history of the world. So that's the first thing I would point out. So this is not talking about keeping women in their place or demeaning them in any way. It's not teaching for, uh, that it's okay for men to, to you know, rule uh, you know, their wives with an iron fist because the next commandment God's going to give is for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So, so we know it's not that. It's also not teaching that women are doormats or that they have to put up with violence or abuse. If you're a woman who, who is dealing with that, you need to come and talk to us. You, you need to make this stop today. This isn't okay. It's not what God intends. So it's not teaching that women are second rate or inferior. The Greek word submit simply means to arrange under. So you purposefully arrange under something else. Uh, it's making a conscious decision to yield to someone else. We do this all the time, by the way, and it doesn't really bother us that much. Somehow when we're told to do it, it bothers us, but we do it at, we do it at work, we do it in conversations, we do it in relationships, we even do it in our own cars, right? If you're, if you're trying to get onto the parkway and there's some guy in the right lane and you're coming up and they're not getting over, what do you do? Do you just ram them? And, no, you, you, you arrange yourself behind that car, you yield. You know, you don't want to, you want to run them off the road, but that would cause a crash. So you yield. So, so this is something we do all the time. Submission involves volunteer, voluntarily yielding your power and your authority to someone else. So it's like tapping the brakes, tapping the brakes. That's what it means. This way of thinking does not come naturally to most of us. We would much rather do the opposite of that most of the time. But that's not what God's designed. God is a God of order which means he's laid out a structure for us that, that will, will, will work. It'll help us. It's like an organizational flowchart or hierarchy that he's, he's laid out, which is actually helpful. Um, have you ever worked at a place where you had multiple bosses? It stinks. It's chaotic. It's, it's so, you don't know who to listen to. Do I listen to that person? Do I do what they told me? Do I do, it, so this is the problem. Uh, I heard somebody one time say that a two-headed marriage is a monster. Somebody has to be in charge. If not, you're going to destroy each other. It's not going to work. We see this hierarchy explained even more clearly in 1 Corinthians eleven three. It says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So this is the, the order. God at the top, Jesus under God, the husband under Jesus, and the wife under the husband. It's helpful to see this progression because even though Jesus is subject to the Father, right? He's arranged under the Father. Is he less than the Father? No. Is he, is he inferior to the Father? No. Not at all. And likewise, 
Though the wife submits to her husband, she is not inferior. So, so the organizational flowchart God has given us doesn't mean that men are superior. It doesn't mean that they're more valuable. It doesn't mean they're better. It doesn't mean they're smarter. It doesn't even necessarily mean that they're more capable. It's possible for none of those things to be true in your marriage, and it doesn't change a stinking thing because this is the way God has ordered it to be. Right? It doesn't change his directive. And men, some of you have figured out that it's easier just to abdicate your role in this, res- in this regard uh, just to keep the peace maybe, or because it just gets you out of leading. And that's not okay. Someday you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, hey, how'd you do with the directive I gave you, husband? Right? He's given you that responsibility. So it, it's time to step up, man up, and be the husband and spiritual leader that God wants you to be. It's important to him and it honors him. When it comes to the roles God has given to husbands and wives, I'll, I admit they're not easy to do. Um, it goes against our nature. Um, it will most certainly be difficult for wives to do what God is asking them. But husbands, I want you to know that you don't get off easy either. Look what he demands of you. Just a small little thing. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. It's like, okay, there's more. As Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her. Well, that changes everything. What kind of love is that? Self-sacrificing love that's willing to die? That, that's a tall order. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for his church. So this, this doesn't just mean like, I think most husbands think this means like if we get in an alleyway and there's a guy that comes out with a gun that I'll, I'll jump in front of my wife and take a bullet. No, this means every day you die to self and put her first. That's, uh, that's hard to do. Verse 28 says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Kind of gives you an understanding of what that means. He who loves his wife loves himself. So making sure our wife's needs are met should be at the same priority level as making sure that our needs are met. And I don't want to brag, but I become an expert at loving myself. I'm really good at it. I I can, I'm, you know, I I, I really make sure that all my needs are taken care of whenever I have them. Uh, I make it a priority. I've got it down to a science. I'm still working on this part of doing this for my wife, but I know exactly what it means and how to do it. I've got that part down. The Ephesians passage ends with the following summary. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So love and respect. These things have become like an endangered species that are about to go extinct in most marriages today. Love and respect. The next time I I teach, I'm going to delve into this more and give us some more practicalities and more tools to use. Um, But for now, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of this. I, I love that Jesus, by the way, has given both husbands and wives a pattern to follow in these areas. I love that Jesus never asks us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. And so wives, he has shown you what it looks like to respectfully submit to your husbands in the way that he submitted himself to the Father. You guys see that? Your Lord has given you an example to follow of what this looks like. Men, he's done the same for you. He's shown you what it looks like to have a sacrificial love for your wife by the way he loved the church and gave himself for her. That's really kind of him. When you learn to trust God and submit to his design, you begin to see the wisdom in it and you see that it actually works. This is what I love. Women respond very well to love, right? They need it. Men respond very well to respect. They need it. It's like God knows what he's doing when he made us, right? Yeah. The key to this is we must decide that we're going to accept this role from God and then do it as, a, as an act of worship, worshipful obedience 
regardless of what our spouse does. This is the part we, we, we get wrong, and we're going to talk about that more next time. But we make it dependent on what they do. Well, sure, if they, if they show me respect, I'll love them. Uh, well, if they, if they show me love, I'll respect them. And we, do, we get this all wrong. And then we get into this negative cycle of sin. Jesus models what this looks like for us as well, the, the good part of marriage as far as doing what we're asked to do. Why does Jesus love you? Is it, is it just how awesome you are? How well you perform? How great you keep His commandments? How faithful you've been to Him? No, He does it because it pleases the Father. It's not based on what you do at all. He does it because He's determined to do it. He's made a decision to do it. If Jesus based this on our performance or on our faithfulness, He would have every reason every day to divorce us. Would He not? Yeah. But He would have every reason every day to withhold His love. But does He? No. And that's our example to follow. Jesus remains faithful and committed regardless of what we do. And so like I said, we'll get into that more. But for now, I'll just say this. Husbands, commit to loving your wife unconditionally with no strings attached and watch what happens. And wives, commit to respecting your husband unconditionally and work on building him up and watch what happens. If you get into that good cycle, it's amazing to see how marriages can work. Now, anytime the church gets together and talks about marriage, we tend to alienate or leave out two important parts of our family those who have been divorced or those who are single. And sometimes that describes the same person. And it can be hard for those people to know how they integrate into God's family. We talked about family last time in my last sermon. Um, You know what, for, for the singles, it's not good for you to be alone either. And this is why God has created the church as a family. You're not alone. You have, you have loved ones around you. You have people around you that, that, that are committed to you. And I want you to know that. Uh, I know so many people feel like they don't matter if they're not married or something like that. No, you matter. You're loved. You're an important part of our family. We're glad you're here. Divorce or singleness does not have to define who you are. You're a Christian first and foremost. Christ defines who you are. Now, regarding those who have been divorced, everybody's story is a little bit different but it doesn't make the result any less awkward or painful. Some of you did everything you could to prevent your marriage from ending, and it ended anyway, and some of you may have been the ones to end it. So regardless of what happened, the, the question that you have to be able to answer now is, you know, what, what now? What do I do now? And one of the things I love the most about our God is, is He's a redeemer. He, he's the God who can take the worst situation and make it beautiful. Beauty from ashes, right? So divorce is not the unpardonable sin, <laughs> If you have been a part of a divorce, this is what I would encourage you to do. Confess any sin that you've committed. Acknowledge it. Agree with God. I I blew it here. I blew it there. Whatever it is, confess whatever sin you may have committed. Ask God to forgive you. Make things as right as you possibly can for all those that it affected. Okay? Because it affects a lot of people. Where it's possible, seek reconciliation. That doesn't mean you, you may necessarily put your marriage back together. That might not be possible. But, but maybe you can be on friendly terms. Maybe you can, you know, where it's possible, seek reconciliation with those who affected it. And, and when you've done all those things, I want you to hear this. Forgive yourself. Your sins are forgiven. The absolution of sins that Christ gives us is, is amazing. When you've done all these things, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Jesus says you're a new creation. He says, I I make all things new. Walk in newness of life. Isn't that such a wonderful thing to know? Because divorce is different than other sins. It feels like this ongoing thing that never stops. 
If you've done these things, you can stop and you can, you can receive forgiveness that's yours today. But, 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 please don't be too quick to jump into another relationship. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this. A marriage ends, it devastates them, and like three months later, they're, they're dating and say, what are you doing? No, don't be too quick to do that. And when and if the time is right, please, please, please make sure that you involve the people that know and love you best, including your pastors, to make sure that this makes sense, right? We want God's blessing on it, for sure. Don't run off and do something crazy and rogue, because you know the stats, second, second marriage is... They don't last long most of the time. I have seen Christian marriages, second marriages, divorced people get married and have a blessed, redeemed, wonderful relationship. It is possible, but it's hard. So, so don't jump into that. And also remember this, being single, according to the Apostle Paul, it ain't such a bad thing. <laughs> you know? I mean, we act, like it's, we act like it's the, you know, oh, well, that guy's cursed for life or that lady's cursed. You know, no, being single, Paul says it's probably better. Probably better than being married if, if you can do it. Because marriage is hard. <laughs> You're not just thinking about you. You know, just think about the two things I told you to do. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. That's hard. It's, you know, being single is not, ain't, ain't too shabby. You need to think about yourself and your relationship with God and the mission He's given you. Getting married could complicate things. I mean, people just, they, they, they think it's the answer. It, it may only make things more complicated and more difficult. If you've learned to be content plugged into the family of God and be single, you're crushing it. Good job. I mean, keep, keep it up. You know, the, like I said, apart from God's grace, every marriage would be doomed. Uh, you know, it, it's difficult. I will also say it's extremely fulfilling when you do it the way God intended it to be done. When you accept these roles and do it the way it's supposed to be done, it, it actually can be extremely fulfilling. You have this companionship and all that. But most people don't do it that way. You know, most marriages that I see are hard and not a blessing all the time. And this gets compounded even further when you have an unrealistic expectation of what marriage is. I wish I could go back and correct this in so many people's thinking, but this is where we go, go wrong from the start. We have this idea of what marriage will be. And basically, you start looking as this marriage thing, this, this relationship thing, to be the answer to everything that you've ever wanted and everything you've been lacking in life. I've got news for you. That ain't what it is. So... When I see, um, this is what I would say, marriage basically when it involves two self-focused people who have come together with the assumption that the other person is going to make them happy and, and fulfill everything they've been missing, you're almost certainly doomed for failure. I mean, I want you to think about that because in this scenario, your happiness is the goal. If the other person isn't able to make you happy or stops making you happy, guess what? Time to go find somebody that will, Right? This idea that you've got this soul made out there that will complete you. And, you know, well, obviously this isn't it, so I better go find that. that. Well, you know what? That person was never intended to be that. You do have a soulmate. <laughs> His name is Jesus. He's the one that can complete you, not, not another person. Do you know, I mean, seriously, do you know how much pressure it puts on another person to say, you're responsible to make me happy? You're responsible to fulfill all, all my desires, and, and, you know, I expect you to do that for me? <laughs> Like, I can't even do that for me. You want me to do it for you? It's like, no. The idea of a soulmate that the world esteems and touts so highly is a complete mirage. It's not real. It doesn't exist in another human being because it wasn't ever supposed to. If it did, you know that God would be setting you up for sin? He would be setting you up for idolatry. 
Do you think God would create something apart from Himself for you to find your ultimate fulfillment in? No. No way. So if that's been your expectation or goal in marriage, abandon ship, right? Confess it as sin. Apologize to your partner for the ridiculous pressure you put on them. And start looking for your fulfillment in God and in Him alone. That will revolutionize your life and your marriage. Okay, in closing, why is it so important for Christian marriages to succeed? Um, This is an important one. Because I think we just think about us when it comes to this and not, not all of us. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, right? To the watching world. If you call yourself a Christian... They're looking at your marriage and they're seeing a reality, a gospel reality in it. It's a, marriage is a picture of a relentless God who will not give up on his spouse. Right? When your marriage fails, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your kids, your family, your friends, your church, and your testimony. All of those things. So this means that if your marriage is in jeopardy, get help. Please. Last time we talked about how we're family. Families share things with each other. If there's something going on in your life that's devastating or hard or or about to fail or whatever it is, you talk to the family about it. You get help. There's no shame in that. You know what? You you either are struggling in your marriage, uh, you know, you have struggled, you are struggling, or you're going to struggle. Those are the three options that I know of, (laughs) right? Everybody that's been married knows the struggle. It can be hard. We're not meant to do this alone. So, so, you know, put the shame down and, and find a way to get help. Um, many of the marriages that we've seen fall apart at the door and, and, and since we've been pastors, it's been because they waited till like DEFCON 1 before they, or, or they just got divorced and came back later and said, oh, by the way, yeah, we, we, you know, we tapped out a few months back. And it's like, well, we can't do anything at that point. So many of the marriages, once we started to talk about what went wrong, we, we probably could have spoken into and found a way to, to, to figure it out. So, don't wait till disaster strikes. If you're struggling, get help now. We have resources. We will meet with you. I, I promise you, we will make it a priority. All right? Marriage is so important because of what it represents. So next time we'll get into more of this. Thank you for bearing with me. Uh, nobody got up and walked out, so that's good. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of marriage. Um, thank you that you have designed it in such a way that is beautiful, that you created man and woman uh, to become one flesh and to complement each other. It's, such, a, it's a, such an amazing thing when it's done right. We just pray that we would be the kind of people that would seek to be good husbands, good wives, to, um, to graciously just go along with your plan, Lord. And not to, not to apologize for it, but to be confident in it, Lord. This is something that you have done that's amazing and we should celebrate it. And, and so I pray that, Lord, we would value what you teach in your word and that we would um, um, take this truth in a loving way to the people around us uh, and help them to see the wisdom in it, Lord, because it really does work. Thank you for your amazing gift of Jesus. Thank you that marriage points to this loving relationship of a God who loved a people so much that, that, he, that he did everything possible to, to create this wonderful, loving relationship with us. You're amazing, Lord. We love you. Amen.